Hello and welcome to another episode of How Does the Social Work, the podcast for and about social workers, brought to you from the Division of Social Work at Brunel University London. My name is Yochai Chakak and I'm a Senior Lecturer in Social Work at Brunel University. Our guest today is Raf Hamezia, who is an award-winning expert by experience, a keynote speaker and a social commentator. Hello, Raf, and welcome on the podcast. Hello. My co-hosts for today are Laura Costa and Gina McCarg. Laura, can you please be the first to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Laura and I'm on the Experts by Experience Committee at Brunel University. We get involved in different aspects of the social work programme from selection days to teaching students about our experiences with social workers. We're also going to be involved in the planning of the programme, which is new and exciting at the same time, as it gives us an, a great opportunity to give our input on what we think is important to teach social work students. And I think that is vital um, to their development as a social worker. Great, thank you. Gina. Hi, um... I am Gina. I recently started a master's in social work at Brunel University and it is quite a career change for me um, in the sense that I was just doing quite office admin e-work before and always wanted to make this change and finally sort of taken on the master's. Great. So if we get started into the interview, could you talk with us your personal background and journey of how you've come to your position as group expert by experience lead for Signet Healthcare. My name's Raf, I'm the group expert by experience lead for Signet Healthcare. Um, Signet Healthcare is a provider of learning disability and mental health services throughout the UK. Um, we're an uh, independent sector organisation and um, we've got quite a lot of units and we've seen quite a lot of growth since I started. So we went from about 23 units to around 140 in the space that, that I've been in. My role as expert by experience lead is to kind of represent the service user and resident voice at every level of the organization and enhance upon the kind of co-production and involvement structures um, at every level of the organization. And that's kind of enhancing on um, how feedback is gathered from a local level and shared um, all, all the way to the board. Um, so I have a team of experts by experience who kind of uh, work alongside me um, and they range from you know, di different lived experiences, different backgrounds, and um, we kind of go out and do inspections and reviews, um, as well as uh, you know, in, involved in various boards and, and clinical structures within the organization. And of course, that stems from me being a service user myself. So, um, uh, you know, when I was quite young, I was used to get in quite a lot of trouble and ended up in services. I ended up like in young offenders institutions when I was quite young and then later on into a kind of forensic mental health services. Um, all in all, I probably spent about five years in those services and it was all in one go. And um, it was from quite a young age. So from the kind of transition period, should we say, from um, my kind of teenage years into, an, into adulthood, 
I'd say the majority of that time was uh, kind of spent in um, services. And um, I think one of the most one of the most difficult things I've perhaps struggled with in, in forensic services in particular, kind of secure services, was the amount of restrictions that are placed upon service users, perhaps more so than even in kind of prison or young offender environments. And um, it's something that I really challenged a lot. And I, I used to make various complaints about it to the regulator for health and social care, the Care Quality Commission. And ultimately, I kind of became friends with a CPC inspector who later suggested I should become an expert by experience with the Care Quality Commission. And um, upon discharge, I ended up uh, joining the expert by experience team at the Care Quality Commission. And um, I started partaking in various inspections. And to date, I've probably done about 150 inspections. So um, near enough every trust in the country. And it just gave me a lot of kind of insight into how um, mental health works from a kind of regulatory perspective. And uh, that's when I came across Signet Healthcare. And um, I think they were probably were wondering who's this kind of chat coming to question us all the time and raising issues and kind of offered a role there. And from there, my, I, I just felt that I've got that lived experience and that I thought it would be important to have that kind of 360 element by having some academic experience. So I applied for a very interesting course that I saw at the University of Hertfordshire called Mental Health Recovery and Social Inclusion. And I felt that was very fitting, but it was a master's. And considering you know, I didn't really go to school or anything, I was always getting kicked out, never had any GCSEs or A-levels, let alone an undergrad. I thought it would be a bit of a long shot, but um, I, got, uh, I got through the test on the kind of exceptional circumstances. And then um, I think it was just a few weeks ago where I got my, um, my marks back. So. I was chuffed about that. Um, so that's kind of my journey as to where I am now. It's just um, about enhancing and co-production, getting the awareness out there and um, looking forward to seeing where the sector goes. What a story. Yeah, congratulations on the mm -hmm. Masters. Can you explain how a service user suddenly uh, just decides that they want to challenge the institution and write these letters and it seems like you wrote not one but well yeah, it is an interesting concept to be honest because i think a lot of the time and uh, you know my fellow psychologists and sociologists will know a lot about the milgram experiment and um, how authority plays a, a very interesting role in how uh, we operate as human beings but i think institutions are a very good uh, experiment as to that as, you know you put someone in um, you know a position of authority especially when it comes to people who perhaps lack capacity or may not be able to articulate themselves in the best way um, it, it's very easy to place restrictions that make one's job easier especially when done under the guise of safety and I think often, more often than not, particularly in mental health care, safety is, and risk is used as a justification to take away fundamental human rights away from people with uh, mental health diagnosis, whether that's deprivation of liberty or even one when someone is deprived of their liberty to further deprive them of, you know, for example, fresh air access, the way people are perhaps treated in terms of restraint, the administration of medication, the use of solitary confinement, which is a rec recognized form of torture and research shows actually increases um, you know, uh, hallucinations and uh, psychosis. So, you know, some people I know say that they 
they first started hearing voices in hospital. And um, it's a very interesting uh, kind of concept to grasp. Um, I think when you have a level of capacity, you quickly come to understand that challenging the institution can quickly get you put into seclusion or unless you do it physically. So into solitary confinement, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd spent quite long periods of time in solitary confinement. If you try and do a run off on, on leave, if you try to abscond or, or something like that, you know, um, obviously you, you, you'll end up in a different situation as to before. Um, also, sometimes you might be in a bad mood or someone might try and physically attack you and get into an altercation. Again, you find yourself in that situation. So it's just, there's a number of different instances or scenarios which can get you going to solve. You could refuse your medication, I guess. My initial point was that I quickly came to realize that the best way to channel things is not banging on the office window or shouting at staff or trying to do a run from the wall because that's just going to, you're just going to end up in there forever doing that. The best way to do it is to challenge it through legislation and through policy and whether the service is following its own local protocols. And the people that hold them to account are people like the regulators, for example, the Care Quality Commission, Relationship Inspector, Engagement um, Officer, and um, people like independent mental health advocates, so on and so forth. So it's about using those channels. So those channels are a lot better. However, obviously, some staff or management may still feel inclined towards you that you're causing a little bit of trouble or you're perhaps, um, you know, raising issues or being like a kind of a whistleblower and um, I guess that probably does have um, a, a, a kind of an impact on how you may be treated if there was one of those instances occurring you now if it was someone else for example who kind of got into an altercation maybe they might be directed back to their bedroom for instance um, whereas you know if you're someone who's regularly putting complaints in you might be directed to a seclusion room instead but I still don't think I get it. You know, I've worked in, in psychiatric hospitals and, and in closed institutions, and often the people that are there feel very disempowered and uh, don't feel that they have either the resources or the capability to, to challenge the institution in a way that you just described. A lot of the time it will come down to individuals. Firstly, it will come down to awareness. So um, do, do they know about things like the Care Policy Commission? or the independent mental health advocates and stuff like that. And then secondly to that, it's about even if you do not know about those people, are those individuals empowered? So you may have a, a mental health advocate on the ward, but do, do they really do anything? But you might come across a gem, so a needle in a haystack, so to speak, that does actually care and that will actually go out their way, that will stay behind working hours and make sure that an issue is resolved. And perhaps I feel in, in many instances, my kind of journey and to where I am now, I was lucky in many of those instances with the people that I kind of came across from, um, you know, kind of advocacy and regulatory perspective, which allowed me to be able to articulate my concerns and, and challenge the authorities in, in, in a way that was conducive um, both to the service and to my recovery. Okay. Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned that you spent some time in a mental health ward when you was younger. We just wanted to know how was your recovery process and what drove you to apply to be an expert by experience? Because there's, you know, there's a process in recovery and then working in employment. So. Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And um, 
now kind of say is perhaps an ongoing process. Um, I feel that I was, I was able to make a lot of change for my own circumstances, but I feel I kind of left a lot of people behind and a big kind of opportunity for me arose in being able to support others, especially, you know, many of my friends who are still in hospital that I developed relationships with. Now I'm kind of coming from a place where I'll develop a relationship with someone, they'll go on leave and jump off a bridge and we'll never see them again. Or you'll wake up at five in the morning hearing gasps next door because um, someone's tied a ligature and they're trying to die by suicide. So it's, um, it's a very difficult place to kind of get discharged from and trying to try to say you're going to just kind of carry on with your life and forget about people. So it's a very unique way for me to kind of go back and, and, and support others. And um, you know, the whole expert by experience concept and recovery and, and these ideas are not like very new. The recovery movement as such first stemmed from the physical disability movement in around the 1960s and, and later enhanced in the 80s after some research. And following that, we started to, you know, see little concepts pop up such as recovery colleges. And then we started to roll them out in the UK. And I think that our first one was in 2008 and they've grown exponentially since. And you know, I think nearly every local area has some sort of access to a recovery college now. And what that does when these things grow, it doesn't only grow the concept of mental health and perhaps learning disabilities as well, moving to a more recovery oriented way of delivering care, but also it grows opportunities for people like us because now we're seeing the rise of peer support workers, people with lived experience working directly with service users on the ward. We're seeing experts by experience, lived experience practitioners, um, you know, people involved at quite senior levels of health and social care. Um, you know, like I think on the second year of my, on sorry, on the first year of my discharge, I was kind of involved in um, developing committee uh, uh, clinical guidance with the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. Uh, you know, committees at the Royal College of Psychiatry. Uh, uh, I chaired the Independent Mental Health Act um, for other ethnic minorities, um, which, which is a review for government commissioned by um, uh, Sir Simon Wesley. So these are quite high level things which we're able to now actually partake in. Whereas when you look at mental health yeah, 20 years ago, choice and involvement wasn't really in the picture. A lot of nurses tell me that when they it was tea time, they used to have a pot of tea with milk and sugar, and they'll come around to your door and they'll pour a cup of tea for you. Whether you took milk or sugar, it didn't matter, you will have it. That was the only choice. And that just gives you an insight into the kind of into how far that we've come in the last few decades of mental health care. Now it's all about choice, it's all about co-production, doing things together. We've moved away even from this idea of service user involvement and moved more towards the concept of co-production. And a lot of people get confused between the two. And what I would say is the fundamental difference is us forming an idea here together and then taking it to service users and saying, what do you think of this idea? That could be perhaps determined as service user involvement because we've developed a concept, whatever it may be, and we are now asking for people's input into it. Whereas the difference with co-production is, is that rather than developing the, the concept and then taking it to service users, we develop it together in co-production with service users and then co-deliver it. 
and um, from the beginning. And I think that's the, the kind of fundamental difference. So that, that's the long-winded answer. Uh, the short-winded answer is um, you know, I wanted to kind of help, help people that kind of felt I had left behind on the ward. And then, um, you know, the changing face of mental health and learning disability care today has kind of enabled me to do so. Thank you. So you did mention earlier working with the um, CQC. Can you tell us more on your like experience with them? I know they were instrumental in, in you getting your your employment and yeah. your first job. Yeah, um, I think it was, that, that's probably the best experience I've ever had be honest that I probably ever will have because not only did the CPC give me the experience and empower me with the tools that I needed to, to be able to kind of carry on with my career and my studies and so on but we have such a diverse range of services around the UK and um, we've got so many different service lines whether it be eating disorders learning disabilities in the community orientation settings different levels of security and forensic mental health care from low secure all the way to high um you know psychiatric intensive care units acute ward so on and so forth being able to visit all these different environments levels of security and see the, the kind of geographical variations in the way clinical practice actually plays out on a local level no, it's just very in, like, invaluable because it, it kind of gave me that ability to have a more strategic overview of how kind of care is delivered and the issues that we face today um, whether it be the kind of understanding of policy and implementation on the ground or the kind of resource implications that, that staff kind of face every day and, you know, I, I, I would say that this is a very fluid situation, but uh, I'm, I'm more comfortable now than ever in being able to say we, we kind of are aware of the issues and it's more about um, addressing them now. And I think the CQC kind of enabled me to do that. Okay, thank you. What have you learned in your role as an expert by experience about mental health services in your area because you're coming from an employment side now not as a service user you're yeah. an employee of um, yeah. services so it's another um other side of the fence yeah i, I mean yeah. one of the most i work with people and you guys may find this hard to believe but i work with people who have like been in solitary confinement for 15 years haven't like left their room for 15 years and it's called long-term segregation and a lot of the time when we're in working in a very medicalized model, psychiatry today and the kind of medical model, as I like to call it, I don't want to say gives up on people, but sometimes perhaps loses hope. Whereas the recovery orientated model, which when we're talking about experts by experience, co-production and stuff like that, I think it gives hope to people. And one of the, the biggest things that I've seen for me, and you touched upon my local area, which is um, it, uh, something that's quite close to my heart, is seeing that recovery is, is possible. And the reason why I mentioned um, uh, the, the, the 15 years long-term segregation is because some people kind of thought that, that someone that we were working very closely with would be in that situation forever. But when you actually take a different approach with people, 
sometimes it can work out and you know that person is no longer in long-term segregation and there's hundreds of other stories that I can give to you like that and that makes that's what drives me every morning to get up it's what continues to do so and it's probably been the biggest lesson for me in the sense that you know recovery is possible and sometimes it's it's not always about the, the the medical elements of it you know medication and therapies are you know very important tools sometimes when it comes to supporting someone but equally as important are just basic things like you know stopping smoking you know when you look at like this the um you know the kind of mortality rates of people with mental health will more likely to die 10 to 20 years younger than the general population and the main factor of that is smoking because we think we smoke two thirds more than the general population, particularly in inpatient services. You know, things like healthy eating, you know, when you kind of link that in with kind of psychotropic medications and antipsychotic medications, you know, obesity is a big problem within mental health care. And when we talk about good social connections within the community and being around positive friends, that was perhaps a a big part of my recovery. You know, if I went back to the council estate, I used to hang around on, you know, I'd probably be back in services right now for a number of factors, not only because I'm around criminality and it you know, every day and I'd probably be more likely to partake in it, but also other factors like I'll probably still be smoking weed, which with high levels of THC, which probably isn't conducive <laughs> to my mental health. So, you know, it's, it's about a number of different factors and in accumulation, it can kind of determine one's recovery, if you like. Thank you. You clearly have a, like a passion and drive for your, the work you, that you do. Would you be able to say like a highlight that has stuck out to you in your whole um, employment so far? So there is um, someone who I work very closely with. Uh, his name's Devon. You won't mind me mentioning him because he speaks about his work publicly and we work very closely together and it's well publicised. But, um, you know, I first met Devon on the CQC inspection, funnily enough, and um, he was a service user at our uh, NHS Trust, and he later moved to a Signet hospital at around the time that I got my employment at Signet, and I met him again, and he was in um, one of our services, and, you know, we worked very closely together, and he was, he was discharged into the community and then came to join us uh, as an expert by experience, and He's now kind of like my deputy, if you like, and that that was amazing. That was a really sort of good moment for me because when I go back to his hospital with him, it's almost like an instant moment, and you see the service users that he used to be on the ward would see him and just be like, everything's you know different now, and it just gives people light at the end of the tunnel that you know there is life beyond the institution, there is life beyond the ward, and um, I think when it's you yourself, it's quite difficult for you to see it when I go and like visit my mates or something like that or someone that I know because I've got personal relationships with them. When you're seeing it from another perspective between others, it's more, it, it, it's more heartfelt because I can see the impact that this really has and you know, that experts by experience and this whole concept of recovery really has a life-changing impact on people and really inspires people. And that's probably the main driver, which you know, helps recovery. I mean, you know, what, what really gets people out of bed you know, when you're in a like, 
when you're in a really depressed state and you're in bed and you just can't get out, you know, something's weighing you down. Not weights, not that the cover's too heavy, but just that that drive and, and that feeling inside you that's not letting you out. And it's people like Devon, when you hear his voice in the corridor and you say Devon's here and you see people jump out of bed. You know, I remember when I first visited us like with them, some of the staff saying, no, there's no way these chaps are going to get out of bed. They just got their meds. They're sleeping in for the morning. And, and that's what the staff thought. But when Devon comes onto the ward, uh, Devon up out their beds and want to have a chat. And that's been a big highlight for me. Thanks. Have you had any challenges that you've overcome during your employment? It's very difficult at the beginning. You know, this is probably one of the most difficult sectors to penetrate. You know, coming from a background like mine, you know, I'm a forensic service user I didn't have any education you know, the only thing that I've got is a, a forensic history really so it's quite difficult to try and get into a sector to go and work alongside vulnerable people but um, you know it's um, that, that was definitely probably one of the biggest challenges that I had to overcome but a lot of my like a, a, a lot of the mistakes that I made was when I was a teenager and it's like over a decade ago now and I guess I kind of paid for them and, and Know, through my kind of recovery journey and now in a much better mental state and my kind of point back to um, the questions that were put to me about that was you know I'm going to be around clinicians every day so if you see me going off the wobble uh, you guys will be the first to see it and that kind of made people laugh and reassured them and um, now since touch wood I, I've never had an issue and um, over over the years just start to build relationships and trust with people. And um, that's been something that I've kind of been able to overcome, but it's, it's definitely difficult to do so because we live in a society that's very quite judgmental towards not only mental health, there's still a lot of stigma around, but especially forensic mental health. Now, when you throw the forensic picture in there, a lot of the kind of, um, a lot of the empathy is thrown out the window, I would say. You know? No one wants to live next door to someone who's got um, a forensic mental health. You did say that you've seen an improvement in mental health services potentially over the years if you look back. But looking at the current state of mental health services, what would you say like the main focus is for improvement just from your personal point of view? Personally, I think it depends how you look at it. If you look at it from today's perspective, there's still a lot of change that needs to happen. There still needs to be a lot of resources and investment into mental health care. Um, we've got a potential staffing crisis on the horizon. Some would argue that we're already in one in terms of nursing staff, for instance, um, and uh, other allied health professionals. Um, for example, social workers, hence me taking part in this today to try and get some from Brunel. But, um, you know, there, there, there is a, a big drive for, for staffing. That, that's a major issue and that has serious implications on the ground. For example, if there's not enough staff, I can't go out and leave. If I can't go out and leave, I'm gonna be frustrated. I might end up in an argument and then I get put up in a seclusion room and then I lose my, lose my leave and then that sets me back a number of, God knows how many months for my discharge. So, you know, it, that, that's really important. Um, and also I would say there needs to be a, a big enhancement in how we view the concept of recovery and the kind of gelling together of the recovery model, as he likes to call it, and the medical model. And that's basically me saying, 
myself as an expert by experience and a psychiatrist working closer together, which, you know, is, is, is happening now. So today there is still a lot of improvement that needs to take place. But if we're looking at 10, 20, 50 years ago, I'd say that we've come a long way. And um, I visited the old world more and um, tell you, I'd, if I really had to be, I'd much prefer to be in the new board now. Um, so uh, we definitely come a long way and the future is, is exciting and you know, despite the challenges. It'll be interesting to see where we are in 50 years. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think in 50 years, the majority of the workforce will have lived experience. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of the workforce will be made up of experts by experience, probably sooner than that, dare I say. Mm, let's hope so. <laughs> Maybe, can you say something about the Signet, just so we get an idea? How many service users are we talking about that are being treated by Signet? Um, you know, you're, you're putting me on the spot a little bit with that one, but uh, probably around um, 3,000. Okay. So is it, is it the... 200 people. Okay, is it the whole of the UK or just parts of the UK or...? So, so it's the whole of the UK, so all the way from um, Bournemouth all the way to Dundee. Okay. I've yeah. put a lot of mileage on my car. Okay. So it's, it's a private company. We like right? to call it independent sector, but that's more, <laughs> that's more of a, a spin. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. we're private. But I mean, yeah. So with the optimism that things are changing, which I share, and hopefully in, in the right direction, and uh, definitely in terms of how you described it from the... Uh, sell to the boardroom. I think it captures something real, but thinking about the fact that uh, services are being privatized and then uh, are delivered for profit, basically, it's a, it's a business model. So I guess what I'm wanting to ask you, we, we know that lots of people challenge this idea of privatizing health and welfare and education. But since we spoke about co-production, the accepted view is that co-production is equal share of power. But when we, you're talking about a business with shareholders and uh, you know, all of this structure in which legally the people who hold the power and make the decisions are the owners, don't you think there are real limitations to the ability to create real uh, co-production? That's a very interesting question. Um, it, it's, not, it's, it's not something that I've personally ever had, had a challenge with. I would say that, you know, the, the, uh, the business kind of uh, element of things is not something that necessarily impacts how, um, you know, work kind of ca carries on in terms of co-production, whether it's public or independent sector. I mean, you know, th this is the whole purpose for regulation and, and policy and guidance, so on and so forth, regardless of whether you're in the independent sector or in, in you know, the NHS, it would, um, you know, it, it would be same, same in terms of expectations, uh, clinical. And I would say that is probably one of the most positive things that I've seen in, in mental health care is that the, the clinical need always trumps everything else you know and so that, that is definitely something that I've seen 
And I agree that it's good that the clinical judgment is valued and doesn't concede to other priorities. But uh, I guess what I'm wondering is if in a model of equal division of power, uh, I can imagine lots of wishes or supposed um, ideas or intentions brought up by service users that won't be so uh, popular <laughs> maybe but to be honest with you i don't know any i don't know any shareholders i've never met any and they certainly haven't uh, wouldn't have an influence on on, on me i mean um, you know the, the work the, the work that we do we kind of just crack on with and i want to kind of be careful i say not, not <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> not necessarily because of my employers but just because of my general um, opinions on that i mean the the in the, the independent sector is quite cost-effective and less bureaucratic in comparison to um, kind of public sector. And I mean, if I wanted to roll out an initiative in um, like an NHS trust or something, it would, it would go through a lot more kind of um, you know scrutiny and challenge uh, than here. So it's easier perhaps to change a culture and roll out um, you know, the, these kind of initiatives within an uh, independent sector organization as opposed to anywhere else. And I'll probably refer you back to, so, you know, when we talk about the CQC inspections, there's also organizational ones. So the CQC do something called a well-led review. And that's basically like an inspection, but instead of on a specific unit or a service, they do it on the entire organization, looking at, for example, governance structures, um, you know, stuff like what you were just talking about, how, you know, the, uh, the business is probably operated from a, um, a kind of um, independent perspective, seeing if clinical practice is being followed and, and, and kind of streamlined down from group. And um, one of, in the latest well-led review that we had, um, one of the, the, the biggest highlights of it was our co-production structures. So for example, like the People's Council stuff that I was talking to you about, which is our, our service user forums, which are from ward to board, and our experts by experience program. So these are, are really all positive things. And, you know, I, I don't want to be too uh, big-headed about the organization, but I'll probably say that we're one of the leading figures um, in kind of co-production and, and recovery, certainly in the independent sector, but perhaps more widely in the sector generally. Can you can you give an example of uh, how this comes into uh, reality and uh, like something that you're really proud of? Yeah, um, so one of the things that I spoke about was um, the People's Council, as I said. So in most mental health settings, you kind of see like something called a, a service user forum or something like that. And they're great. They're basically meetings which empower service users to kind of perhaps have some choice on the service and stuff historically. It's been going on for a long time. What we kind of perhaps saw was being able to incorporate it into a wider structure. So actually incorporate into the heart, literally into the middle of our governance structure and ensure that these co-production meetings are not only taking place on a local level, but on a regional and strategic level. And that enables service users, residents and family carers to have a say at every level of the organization, whether it's on the local level, for example, the design of the building, local protocol, how the food is, or whether it be on a regional level, for example, where budgets are allocated, um, what activity should be um, prioritized, even to that down to you know who should be appointed for a regional role, for example, on the interview panel, for instance. And then on a strategic level, looking more wider at our more generalized policies and our kind of strategy, vision, and values all of which has been co-produced 
And, and that's something that's kind of now been replicated at other organizations. And we've had some independent research done on it, proving its kind of effectiveness. We know that improved, it improves satisfaction. Um, we know that it's reduced complaints, instances of violence and aggression. And um, also, as I said, the, the Care Quality Commission have, have uh, been very positive in, in their kind of response to it. So that, that's perhaps um, uh, the, the, the main thing. And then what, what I guess it really does is just give the ability to, for people in care to have real change in you know, their, their, their kind of day-to-day. -day. And it's, very, it's more difficult to explain than seeing it. It's quite an organic thing, but you know, people might just say, you know, we've had enough of this on the menu, we want to change this. We want to do this activity from now on. We don't like this new rule that's come in. And you have the hospital manager there, for instance, if it's in a hospital setting and the senior management team. And it just becomes a little bit of a discussion and a debate. And more often than not, a middle ground is found and you know everyone's happy. Going along with those lines, what advice would you give someone who would like to gain employment as an expert by experience, lead as yourself? Uh, it's a, that's a difficult one because I'm responding emails about every day, as you can probably imagine. It's very, very difficult right now in, in COVID times. So that's probably changed the game a lot. Um, but I would say there's a lot of organisations out there. I would say even universities, you know, look at Brunel, for instance. Brunel's not the only one that I know as well. There's a lot of universities that have got experts by experience teams, a number of charities, you know, almost every statutory and non-statutory body that I now know, like within the sector, has some sort of expert by experience group, whether it be, you know, NICE, UPC, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, um, you know, everywhere across the board, there's a lot of opportunities. I'll just say it's probably worth um, having a look out there. Also local NHS trusts as well. Um, most NHS trusts now have some sort of involvement infrastructure and are likely to have um, expert by experience, peer support worker opportunities. Um, and also I'll, I'll give a big shout out to like our charities and stuff like Rethink and Mind, a lot of who do uh, a lot of research in this area and have like a lot of links and networks and resources to point people in the right direction. And I'm, to be honest with you, I'm a big fan of just applying for general roles to be instance. Um, I used to be, a big supporter of the concept of peer support workers but then that kind of thought wait a minute you know why can't I just be a support worker why can't I just be a nurse like why do I specifically have to go into this role because of my diagnosis and often it tends to be the lowest paid lowest banded role in the organization you know so it's just a little bit disempowering in my opinion for me it's more about going into a general role and just using our values and our ex lived experience to work alongside people better on a personal level. Okay, thank you for that. Just to finish up, I mean, I don't know if anyone has any other questions, but I know you took on a master's and I have most recently taken on a master's. How did you find your master's degree and any advice um, on how to take on the challenge? It's a tough one, really. But um, you know, to be honest with you, it's quite it was quite straightforward for me. Um, mm. The dissertation was difficult because um, you know it was just it was just very long winded. But I don't know, like how many words are normally your assignments and all of that? Just give me an idea. Well, we've just we're sort of just gearing up to our first one, which is very short. It's like what would, what would they be? Yeah, okay. 
I don't know. Gina, what, what's your first assignment? It's, only, it's only 1,500. That's not scaring me so much. It's just, I guess it's just the, taking on the whole course and juggling all the modules at once and also sort of a looming dissertation on the yeah, cards. I, you know what it is? I, once I got the hang of it, I just realised that, you know, instead of just putting everything down on a piece of paper, because my mind runs at a thousand miles per hour, just having some like real structure and just the, the, not forgetting the context and the narrative gets lost in what you're saying. Sometimes when mm -hmm. we're doing work, we write things down in our own, like in a way that we can only, we need to be conscious that we don't write it down in a way that only we can understand it. And also that our tutors or whoever else will be reading it can kind of get our point as well. Mm. And um, I'd say, yeah, just uh, I found like referencing, like all, the, all these little things quite difficult at the beginning, but you get the hang of it. And by the time, you know, your, your dissertation comes, you'd get the hang of it. It's just, it's just a learning mm. really. Did you, would you say you enjoyed your master's? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It really gave me some like, um, you know, theoretical knowledge, like if people kind of argue with me, sometimes I argue with myself, like academic probably becoming like in academia kind of probably made me a little bit more um, wobbly in terms of my, I find myself arguing with myself, even the last point that I gave around uh, peer support workers, you know, that's not necessarily backed up by research. A lot of, you know, there's some mm. of the research out there that says peer support workers are very effective, you know, that they reduce mm. the amount of bed days and, um, um, you know, people, when they're discharged, they spend longer in the community and have higher satisfaction than peer support workers level. But, you know, it's just, these are things that academia teach you. But it's, it's, it's really good because you can still have your personal views and your personal opinion on things Mm. And you're empowered by your academic understanding. Because if someone, if I said that about peer support workers and someone turned around and said, Raf, the research says this, I'd feel a little bit embarrassed. But, you know, because of that kind of academic background, I'm aware of it. And, you know, I know that some of those studies have had their limitations and I'm then able to come back with a rebuttal and blah, 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 blah. So, you know, you're, just, yeah. you're more empowered to go out and fight the world with your and um, you know your social skills and your academic ability. Thanks. You talk quite a lot about the past but what about the future? I've got a few different plans. I definitely want to kind of have a care provider of my own at some point which the majority of people will be made up of and people with lived experience and um, not necessarily peer support workers as I've said before because I don't want to sound like I'm contradicting myself but I just when I mean lived experience I just mean people with lived experience of mental distress. You mean that you want that the staff will be people with lived yeah, experience? Yeah, staff, yeah. Okay. So, so, so the staff. Um, I just feel that there's that, not necessarily 100% of the staff, but I would definitely say the majority. I feel there's something unique in that, that relationship based on empathy and shared understanding that you cannot replicate. And as much as I sit down with a psychologist and will tell them my life or how I'm feeling, I can never really, I can never really feel confident within myself that they understand unless they've been there themselves. So it's quite a different dynamic when you're working with someone with lived experience. And, and I feel that's definitely something that I want to push forward. So, um, and uh, be community-based as well. Is this something in the immediate future or? Uh, would you want to be a shareholder? Yeah. <laughs> 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 you're very interested. no 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 i'm good i'm good i'm good with what i'm doing yeah it would hopefully be in the near future i feel like i'm um 
I'm, I'm getting to the point where I'm competent enough to be taken uh, seriously as opposed to, you know, a guy who just got out of hospital. Because it has been some time now there, I think. I never used to speak like this. I used to say in it, in it. In it, yeah. <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to say before we uh, say goodbye? Final message, shout out to, um, I don't know, social work students. <laughs> the, big, the, big bad, the big bad private healthcare provider. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'll just say um, um, so, social work is uh, obviously a very important part of um, what we do. And um, a lot of the time, I think social workers are perhaps a very important part in prevention and stopping people from ending up in the kind of institutions that I experienced myself or um, ending up down the line. And if we can grab things earlier, early intervention is perhaps a very important and effective way of ensuring people live meaningful lives beyond their environments, beyond their diagnosis, um, you know, beyond the kind of issues that people face as, as, as young people. And um, I'd say that becoming a social worker, as challenging as it may be, definitely worth um, every moment of your life and it's a very meaningful way to kind of contribute to society beautiful thank you very much you. you're, you're gonna thank cut you. that your high back and use it oh cut it and bring it to the beginning <laughs> if anything <laughs> okay lovely Raf. i want to say thank you very much for spending time with us and i'm sure you're very busy but uh, it was a pleasure to get to know you more and we'll be following with interest your next moves thank you thank you very much to laura and thank to you. gina and thank um, you yeah hi thanks thanks Ralph. thank, thank you. you thank you, gina. Thank and, you very uh, much. to our listeners um join us next week for our next program <laughs>